Duomo. You could not escape from it. It made you feel quite naked and unprotected. At the same time, it beckoned with an irresistible magnetism. Alastair Horn, The Price of Glory, Verdun, 1916. Welcome to the Battle of Verdun podcast episode 3, Durchbruch und Duomont. This is coming out a few hours late on a uh, Sunday evening. I tried doing this earlier, but it just wasn't working out. So when things happen like that, sometimes you just have to walk away and come back and try again later. So here we are. When we left off the last time at the end of Episode 2, the German attack on the Battle of Verdun had begun after the nine-hour bombardment with 1,200 guns and some 2 million shells being expended during that nine-hour barrage. Uh, After the Germans plastered every French position inside the Verdun salient, uh, they attacked on the right bank only with four corps worth of infantry. And last episode, we focused on the defense of the Bois des Cartes by Lieutenant Colonel Emile Driant and his two light infantry battalions, the 56th and 59th Chasseurs à Pied. Driant and his men put up a dogged defense until they were overwhelmed on February 22nd. And Driant himself was killed along with many of his men. But he and his men had managed to stall the German advance in his sector for at least one full day. But the defense of the Bois des Cars, magnificent as it was, did not take place in a vacuum. Indeed, the wood fell because the French positions to the left and the right of the Bois des Cars, and to the rear, for that matter, had already given way under the weight of the German assault, and thus they fell as well. So, the main action during the first week of the Battle of Verdun took place between the village of Brabant, on the banks of the River Meuse itself, to the village of Orne, some 10 kilometers to the east of the River Meuse. And you might say, man, I I don't know where these villages are. Well, don't worry about that, I got you covered. Right on the accompanying website to this podcast... BattleOfVerdunPodcast.com. There is a map up of the Verdun battlefield. Uh, you can follow along, and from here on out, you'll be in the know. So, moving right on, here's what happened after the bombardment ended on February 21st, and everywhere else except the Bois de Car. Just like at the Bois de Car, the Germans probed the shattered and largely destroyed French frontline positions once their guns had gone quiet. Now remember, the artillery barrage the Germans unleashed was supposed to wipe out all of the Poilus in the first trench lines so that the Germans would literally kill everything in their target areas. That didn't happen. Somebody 
always survives the bombardment. It was a lesson that would be learned time and time again on the Western Front of World War I. Um, so while the Germans didn't wipe out every French soldier, they did pretty much wipe out all of the terrain features on, on the map of Verdun. To the point that French soldiers, those that survived the bombardment with any sense of sanity left, reported that they, when they physically got up, stood up after the bombardment and looked around where they were, they did not recognize where they were. Like if they had been in a forest, you're now in a desert of stumps. They had no idea where they were. For the most part, again, like we did in uh, episode two, the Sturmtruppen that led the German assault, um, they didn't do that much Sturmtruppening. They really were cautious. They advanced and probed the French defenses in, in almost all the areas between Brabant and the village of Orne. All except for one area, between the village of Brabant and the Bois des Corps, where Colonel Drian and his men were putting up a fierce fight to hang on to their shattered forest. Between these two points, Brabant and Bois des Corps, was another wood called Bois d'Armont. And here, the men of General von Svail's 7th Reserve Corps found that opposite them, the French 165th Infantry Regiment had been decimated down to two platoons worth of shell-shocked infantry. So imagine that a regiment, you're talking about 3,000 men, being wiped out and down to probably 80 men and who knows how many of those guys were really effective. So General von Svail, going against the orders of both the Crown Prince, commanding the German 5th Army, and General von Falkenhayn, commanding the entire German army on the Western Front, von Svail released his guys, his men, to grab the entire Boarhamo. Basically said in German, Effet. Going is good. Grab this place while you can. So his soldiers did. They pushed through the French first line and made a 3,500 meter deep dent right in the battlefield front line, right on the first day within the first few hours. The next day on the 22nd, German attacks got going in strength. French units on the front line, what was left of them anyway, were overwhelmed. Many of these units were down to a faint shadow of their former strength, just like 165th Infantry Regiment. Whoever was left was exhausted, shell-shocked after the bombardment, and with all communications to the rear lost within the first hour of the barrage on the 21st, many of these French soldiers simply didn't know what to do. Did they hold or did they retreat? Do you die in place? Or do you run like hell to another position and then defend from there? So the Germans overran the first trench line. And the communication stoppage with French units was instantly wreaking havoc. Uh, because soldiers at the front had lost communications with, with the headquarters to the rear. Information wasn't flowing. When it did, those few times that it did, it was either too late or just wrong. These orders never made it because there was a reliance on 
telephone wire and human runners, human soldiers who carried the messages from headquarters to the frontline positions and back. Telephone lines were typically dug about 18 inches down into the ground, but with you know that kind of bombardment that was launched against the French lines uh, in the Verdun salient, those, those telephone lines were cut within, within minutes. And then you had to rely exclusively on human runners. And these guys, brave as they were, vast majority of them never made it through the artillery gauntlet. So when any information ever did arrive, it was mostly too late or already obsolete. And nowhere is this more readily apparent than at the village of Brabant, where the French unit was given the authorization to withdraw, but almost as soon as that order was given, it was rescinded, and French soldiers were told to turn around and retake that village. Unfortunately, the Germans had already occupied it. So French simply wasted more of their soldiers' lives trying to retake a village that, that they simply couldn't retake. So Brabant fell. Bois-Armont, to its east, was already taken. Bois-de-Corps fell on the 22nd. Bois-de-Ville, further to the east of Bois-de-Corps, also fell. At the Bois-Herbe-Bois, the French held on. This was the only place where the French poilus held the original front line that was, uh, that was their front line on February 21st. They held on to it until they were burned out by German flamethrowers. And it was, fighting was fierce. Fighting was nasty. Following along on the map, the battle line now ground towards Beaumont, a village to the immediate south of the Bois de Corps. Beaumont sat on a hilltop and was an ideal defensive position. The French 208th Infantry Regiment stationed there repelled three separate German attacks on February 22nd that were so bad that the Germans resorted to wave infantry attacks in order to try and take this village. French machine gunners mowed them down wave after wave pretty ruthlessly, but the fighting was, was awful. The Germans were plastering the village with artillery. Frenchmen inside it were under terrible conditions where the wounded could get no treatment and were frequently had to be left where they were. And men were cowering in their trenches. The weather was awful. Soldiers had to scavenge the bodies of their dead comrades in order to find ammunition to keep up the fight. And at one point, they even built shelters out of bodies by stacking them in order to ward off against the cold. French held on to Beaumont as long as they could, but the Germans eventually took them over. Once they did, German officers had to intervene against their soldiers to make sure that the French survivors who had surrendered weren't slaughtered by the German infantry. Moving on, at a bend in the Meuse south of Brabant was another village named Samagneau. The Germans advanced on the village on February 23rd. Frenchmen holding the line had their orders this time. Hold the village, gut get gut, whatever the cost. Heavy fighting broke out as the defenders found themselves trapped by the Germans. French stragglers coming out of the village fled south telling everyone they could find that Semignot had actually fallen. So French artillery 
or what was left of it, then plastered Samonio with a devastatingly accurate barrage that landed on their own guys. When the bombardment was over, the Germans took the opportunity they had been handed and overran the village. To the French, it was quite obviously a disaster. And here's how things got moving. The mill on the Meuse, the nickname German troops would give to the Battle of Verdun, was already getting to work. Artillery slammed into French trenches, gun emplacements and rear areas almost ceaselessly. French artillery tried to respond, but it was a scattered, piecemeal response. But already troops moving to the Verdun front could hear the constant rumble and the constant pounding of artillery. Germans pushed the front line forward two kilometers closer to Verdun in two days. For World War I, that's pretty damn good. But the French, nevertheless, counterattacked constantly. Counterattack after counterattack, no matter how small and mostly ineffectual. So a position would be lost, with a defending French battalion reduced down to a platoon of shell-shocked poilus. These guys would be ordered to immediately counterattack that position. Sometimes, their audacity and sheer bravery won them gains totally out of proportion to their size. More frequently, these small unit attacks wiped themselves out. If and when the French retook a corpse-choked line of trenches or shell craters, the ever-smaller number of survivors would wait for the inevitable German counter-counterattack. This stuff just went back and forth all the time. So the mill on the Meuse began to grind. And within the first three days of the battle, the French 51st and 72nd Infantry Divisions, those units holding the right bank of the Meuse from Brabant to the village of Orne, lost 16,000 of its 26,000 men. The Germans weren't that far behind in casualties. So by February 23rd, French morale and resistance began coming apart. Units were disappearing. On the 24th, the French army pulled back to its newly dug and inadequate second defense line. The situation was confusing, and the morale of the Poilus was not high. These guys had been under constant bombardment for now three days, probably not fed, uh, with wounded, with most of their comrades being blown apart or being left where they were. And their artillery, French artillery, French artillery was either not helping, was completely silent, having been knocked out by the Germans, or when it was doing anything, it was landing on French soldiers. And throughout all this, the Germans kept pushing. The attacks kept coming. And then it happened. Durchbruch. Breakthrough. The same day the French pulled back to the second line, the Germans hit it and poured over it within a few hours. So again, the map, and we'll do a frontline trace. That's where we attempt to get an idea of where the front line now is. So on February 24th, the front line of the Battle of Verdun on the right bank would scratch out a line going roughly from Côte de Talot Hill directly to the south of German-occupied Samogno and moving east to the hilltop village of Louvemont, and then snaking further east to the village of Bézonville. 
French 30th Corps that had been in the fight now since February 21st had pretty much ceased to exist. There were gaping holes in the French line, entire areas that did not have French soldiers defending. So the French rushed in the 20th Corps that was being thrown in to, to plug those holes. The 20th Corps was nicknamed the Iron Corps and had been commanded by the dashing General Ferdinand Foch himself. He's the guy who would later become the Supreme Allied Commander in 1918. So the 20th Corps had a solid combat reputation. But that reputation in Verdun did not count for much, unfortunately. The Germans tore them up and kept grinding forward. And that's how it was done. By the end of the 24th, Germans had taken more ground in one day than they had taken in the previous three days of the hellish fighting at Verdun. French units could only put up a weak resistance. Wounded and retreating Poilus struggled back to the rear areas, babbling that there were whole patches of the battlefield literally empty of French soldiers. And it seemed like nothing could stop the Germans at this point, except the Germans themselves. Because the Germans, worn down by four days of unexpectedly heavy fighting, were now becoming ever more cautious. They weren't quite ready for the resistance Franz had put up in the nightmare forests and shattered villages and the shell craters. And even if he was being constantly beaten back, Franz, the Frenchmen, were constantly fighting. So the Germans moved forward steadily but carefully. And this caution is really too bad because it seems like not too many people noticed it at the time, but on the 23rd and the 24th of February, the Germans and French were out of their trenches and fighting out in the open. Meaning, for a very limited time, the war of movement had actually returned on the Verdun battlefield. French defense was unraveling. It got even worse on February 25th when the Germans pushed the French back even more, taking Côte de Talot Hill, Louvement, Bézonvaux, and Haudemont Village, south of Bézonvaux. The front line was now at the mighty Fort Douaumont itself, centered on the linchpin of the line of forts, ringing Verdun. It meant the German army was now only some seven kilometers away from Verdun itself. With the battle lines now at the Verdun forts, the situation was becoming critical for the French army. The forts themselves could provide only a very limited amount of support to the troops outside them due to the relentless requisitioning of heavy guns the previous year. Look at Fort Douaumont itself. After the fall of the Belgian forts at Liège and Namur in 1914 during the German advance through Belgium, Douaumont became the strongest fortress in Europe. Sat like a mammoth and half-buried turtle with its imposing hump dominating much of the battlefield. I mean, German units could not advance on the right bank without having Fort Dumont somewhere in their line of sight. But with the necessities of grinding trench warfare from late 1914 and on through 1915, forts like Dumont were considered an expensive relic. And again, with the need for heavy guns, stripping the Verdun forts pretty much made sense to everyone. So... The majority of its guns were removed, leaving Dumont a declawed tiger. Its potential garrison of 
1,000 men now stood at a total of 56, all of whom were territorial soldiers in their 50s or 60s. For my fellow Americans out there, territorials back then were really old reservists who did rear echelon jobs in order to free up younger guys for the actual fighting. So one of the linchpins of the Verdun defenses with Verdun a focal point of defense on the Western Front was essentially undefended. And now the Germans were right up against it. So the German unit with Fort Douaumont in its sector was the 24th Brandenburg Infantry, a famed regiment with a history going back to at least the Napoleonic Wars. So in the bad weather, the driving snow of February 25th with German shells pounding the fort, a small unit of German pioneers led by a Sergeant Kunze approached the fort as the shells fell all around it. Kunze and his men noticed that all of the fort's observation posts had to be empty, otherwise they should all have been machine gunned as they approached the fort. Sergeant Kunze and his men cut through the barbed wire surrounding the fort and approached an opening in the fort's battered wall. Kunze ordered his guys inside, but they refused. Pretty surprising for what you would expect of German soldiers. But his guys thought that it was all a setup for a French ambush once they got inside the fort. So Sergeant Kunze went in by himself because in case you didn't know, that's what NCOs do. They lead the way. The fort was empty inside. Kunze literally walked around until he found the majority of the 56 French territorials huddling in the lower levels. And then he took them all prisoner. And then he stopped and had lunch because he happened to walk by one of the rooms and found that one of his prisoners had his lunch all laid out. So Kunze sat and ate. A little bit later, Lieutenant Radke and his men moved in on the fort from a different direction. And this young lieutenant was having a hard time trying to figure out a way over the iron rail fence surrounding Fort Dumont when one of his own artillery shells blew him over the fence, solving his problem for him. And no doubt, a lot of his guys, when they found him alive and well on the other side, probably said, man, you are... One lucky motherfucker. Radke then linked up with Kunza inside the fort and with his soldiers, and they further secured it. Then after that came a third group with a Captain Haupt and a Lieutenant von Brandis and more soldiers. And von Brandis would shortly get, and he would very much bask in the credit of taking Fort Duomont. But really, he got the credit because he was the guy who delivered the news that the fort had been captured. And he was well-liked. He was a, an impressive-looking soldier, and he was the guy that they wanted to be the poster boy for German arms on the battlefield. But there it was. Fort Duomont had fallen to the Germans without a shot being fired in its defense. And this was an almost unparalleled victory for the German army. The next day, church bells rang 
all over Germany in celebration, and school kids were let out on a holiday. Now units of the Crown Prince's 5th Army began to unfurl their regimental flags in anticipation of the victory parade they would make through the town of Verdun. At first, the French didn't really grasp the enormity of the disaster they'd just been dealt. Again, the forts were considered outmoded, if not useless, relics. So at the beleaguered General Hare's headquarters, this guy is just such a poor bastard, but dealt a very crappy hand by fate. General Hare and his staff put out a very military-sounding communique that what had actually been taken by the Germans was an advanced element of the former Verdun fort system. So it made Dumont sound like it was as important as a bunker. Basically, the French were saying, yeah, you know, the Germans captured a tool shed. Nothing to see here, folks. But the French understood just how bad it was in about a day. Equaling the chaos of the battlefield was the French headquarters at Dugny to the south of Verdun. The German breakthrough on the 24th and the loss of Fort Douaumont on the 25th, General Hare started pleading with General Joffre to withdraw all French forces from the right bank of the Verdun salient. In response... Joffre grudgingly sent his chief of staff and potential rival, General Noël Marie Joseph Edouard Vicomte de Courrier de Castelnau, up to see if things at Verdun were as bad as everyone was saying. Joffre, being the tough and inspiring commander he was, and that's poor sarcasm, instructed de Castelnau to do what he needed to do, but in such language so vague that any blame for the potential disaster could be blamed on de Castelnau and not on Joffre himself. So, de Castelnau took off with his military power of attorney from Joffre to act as he saw fit. Before he left, he got the approval to transfer the French Second Army, then in reserves and available, to Verdun to take over command of the battle. De Castelnau Nicknamed the Fighting Friar because he kept a Catholic priest with him in his entourage. That priest was actually his nephew. Was a tough little guy who came from a long and noble line of French generals. Although he was considered the high priest of the French army's offensive à outrance doctrine, he was nevertheless a fairly flexible and adaptive commander who was an inspiration to others around him by his presence alone. He was energetic and magnetic, like a bottle of condensed awesome. General de Castelnau shows up on the Verdun battlefield for only two or three days, and they only made two major calls as a commander. But these two orders would have major consequences, as we shall see. The first order was to get 2nd Army moving to take over the defense at Verdun. The second order was given after he arrived at Verdun. He came to General Hare's headquarters and was met by mass panic and pandemonium. I imagine him standing in the headquarters at Duigny in the middle of it all, watching men running around everywhere with no one quite knowing what the hell was going on. 
On his way to General Hare's HQ, he had already telephoned to instruct Hare himself not to give up any more ground. Now that he was here, de Castelnau began to lay down the law. In short order, wherever he went, he left men focused and working towards the goal of defending Verdun. De Castelnau put the various pieces together, such as he could find them, and found that, while the situation was bad, things could be turned around. So on February 25th, right around the time Sergeant Kunze was entering Fort Dumont, de Castelnau gave his second order. There would be no retreat. Verdun was to be held. At all costs, of course. Even if he'd wanted differently, de Castelnau knew there could be no other way with his French army. With de Castelnau's order to hold and the loss of Fort Dumont coming back to back, the officers and men of the French army very quickly grasped the significance of the battle now. It was a do-or-die struggle with Germany. It was gericht, the judgment. Verdun couldn't fall now. They had to hold their ground. The rest of France would soon understand the same. One guy would be really happy with this news. General Eric von Falkenhayn. Von Falkenhayn would now have the French right where he wanted them. Next time, we'll pick up from the German capture of Fort Dumont and move on forward as the Battle of Verdun develops further and spreads. Thank you, as always, for listening and subscribing. Your comments, reviews, and questions are welcome on battleofverdunpodcast.com and on iTunes. And don't be shy. Drop a quick review. Thanks again, and take care.